Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of The Virtuous Mindset. In this podcast, we speak to a wide variety of guests from leaders, investors, entrepreneurs, sports personalities, through to CTO, HR and D&I professionals. We talk to our guests about how their core values have helped shape their careers, whilst also exploring the many challenges they faced over the years. I'd really appreciate it if you could click the subscribe button, as by doing so, it gives us the opportunity to speak to an even wider variety of guests. With that in mind, let's get to it. Welcome to the Virtuous Mindset. So Thank good you. to have you. Oh, lovely to be here. Yeah, I know we've gotten to know each other over the last couple of weeks, and I've got to say that you were one of the most humble, down-to-earth people that I've come across. Oh, really? And it's, yeah, it's rare to find. You've honestly. spoken to some dodgy people, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really good to have you. I read your book, I read it over the weekend, and it's such an interesting account of the experiences that you've had, both kind of the ups and downs that you've gone through through your, through your career. And yeah. I know that you're also very vulnerable and, and sensitive at times, which is a hard thing to do you don't need a formal introduction because everybody knows who you are but before we get started as a sports personality what does it mean to you to have a virtuous mindset I think it was my attitude from day to day um, going into training not not just on a match day I've always been a conscientious sort who just tried to give their best do the best very obedient sort of character so if the manager tells me to do something I would never answer back you know I'd just do it to reach a level I think to set high standards I mean that's something our managers always drilled into us but personally to set high standards every day because if you can do that I've met so many young players that have come and trained with the first team they're the next up and coming bright young thing but they faded away because they couldn't achieve that consistency they didn't mm. have that attitude uh, even sometimes when you're not feeling your best you know you get out of bed you think oh god the body doesn't feel like it today but that's when you really have to grit your teeth and and still contribute and give a performance i've always tried to do that to be somebody that can be relied upon Mm. by teammates Mm. and the managers yeah well it's clear that you've really pushed yourself through your career and that you've you know like persistency is key of course in anything that you do you have to keep pushing until you get better at something but I want to start with life before football because in your book you talk very positively about your childhood despite having money troubles you say that you're naturally shy and that you're well behaved and your mum would often ferry you around uh, for matches and she would take two or three buses at a time to show her support which is always really good what drew you specifically into the game of football versus all the other alternatives out there there, there probably weren't so many alternatives then yeah. as there are now I mean there's so many things kids can do but it was just a natural thing at the time all my mates well I was four or five as soon as I could walk about and kick a ball I, I had a ball with me I was always carrying a ball I had the kit of I was brought up in Birmingham I think I had Birmingham City's kit and I remember having a picture taken in the back garden but I was always over the park with my mates yeah and it was just something that we loved doing played cricket in the summer uh, played tennis at the tennis courts down at the bottom so we were always doing some sort of sport but football was always the thing and of course the more you do it the better you become and um, I was always one of the better players amongst my friends but I just loved it I was out from morning till night in the school holidays and uh, even when I was at home I'd be throwing a ball up against a wall and practicing my control and my skills my touch 
Yeah, and it was never it never felt like hard work. Hard work. It was just something uh, that came naturally. I just loved doing it. Yeah, I mean the passion clearly comes across, and you were like you say you were passionate from a young age, and then I think your your mom and dad always backed you when it came to football. Yeah, would you say they, so? they were never like tiger moms and dads. They didn't really push in that way. Yeah, they encouraged gently, um, but they were always there to help. I mean, dad dad worked long hours. Um, uh, and sometimes he was on call at night even. He was working hard for the family. Um, and mum, uh, in the week, if uh, I had, I started playing for the district and the county, so sometimes we had to get across the other side of the city, and so she'd take me on buses, two yeah, or three wow. buses. Yeah, wow, like you said, two or yeah. three in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, th- that that was invaluable. And, and, you, and you hear about it all the time, about how much uh, help. Um, parents have given and you never forget that and and they just wanted me to be happy and to do well you know and you also hear of parents that have pushed too hard and and then the child rebels a little bit and says I don't want to do it anymore you know that's it but it was never like that with my mum and dad Uh, dad loved his football uh, and my mum just wanted to see me do well so uh, yeah yeah, I had a very very happy childhood Um, and I say in the book that maybe that's why I've got the temperament that I have, you mm. know, and oh, people always used to say, oh, you could do with being a bit more nasty and that, and, you know, and, yeah. that, and I probably would have been a better player with that extra 5%, you know, of being that nastiness, but you can't pretend to be something that you're not. That's just how I am. And that's, uh, that, that helped me in my career, I think, in the big moments that I, I could concentrate and have a calm temperament, not get too pumped up. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, was. we'll definitely talk about your calm temperament because that certainly is something that has helped you through your career. Um, but you were studying modern languages. Yeah. You were then playing for Alva Church, the non-league football club, and you managed to successfully sign with Leicester City, which is fantastic to be able to play professionally. What was so special about you? Why did they pick Allen versus the competition that's out there? And I ask this because less than 1% of footballers actually make it professionally. So what was so special about you? Well, uh, well, well funnily enough, when I was at school, uh, I knew of uh, teammates, say, for the district or the county that got picked up by professional clubs, and I didn't. Mm. So at 16, uh, I didn't. And But I, I always enjoyed my studies, so I wanted to stay on at school, do my A-levels. And then when nobody offered me anything at 18... I went to university and at that point I thought, oh, maybe I'm not going to be a footballer anymore. Mm. As you say, I did modern languages and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this degree at the end of the four years? Yeah. Uh, so I think that helped me relax when I started playing for Elf Church. I was just doing it for the enjoyment because I loved it. I learned a lot there. I was there just a year in, in non-league football. But mm-hmm. um, I suppose when I did relax, I showed my best football and scouts would always come to those games uh, professional scouts to have a look see what talent was on offer and yeah I, I just got picked by Leicester all sorts of scouts came the Manchester United manager at the time Ron Atkinson came yeah. to have a look which was a big thing you know Alf Church it's a village club it played at a good level in the Southern League but to have the Manchester United manager come in his Rolls Royce and fur coat it was a big thing um but he, he didn't actually stay for the whole game on Atkinson and it, we joke about it since. But uh, Leicester were the ones that put up the money and they just saw something in me. You know, why didn't they, you know, pick somebody else? Who knows? But I was at a good age. I was 18. Mm. 
Mm. And um, they saw something that could be developed. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely very clear that they saw something that could be de- developed. And this is something that I think is really important because you talk about in the book where the footballers are born with skill. And I know yes. that your work ethic is something that's that you've that's really important to you. And we, we go about this point of nature versus nurture. Yes. And I refer to the book of Matthew Said, which is something that you, you made a reference to it, Bounce. And he says that it's all about practice. And if you put thousands of hours in your formative years, it becomes second nature. There's no such thing as innate talent. And you actually agree with this viewpoint that work ethic and putting the grit and determination focus is what gets you through, you know, any goal that you want to achieve. I think so, yeah. yeah. Why is that? I mean, so, down the years, so often we've said, oh, he's a natural goal scorer or, you know, he's a natural that he doesn't have to work too hard at it. But these people that have got an ability to put the ball in the net, you know, it doesn't happen by coincidence. They have practised so hard at it uh, until it becomes second nature. I always used to think that, yeah, you're either a natural athlete or you're not. Mm. But, you know, as older I've got, I've realised that it is down to those hours that you put in. And as I said to you, um, over the park, all those countless thousands of hours and, yeah. and practice um, that that's that developed honed my technique. I, I became almost two-footed, and people thought I was left-footed because I used to control the ball with my left foot, but I was actually right-footed. But I used to just practice on both sides, and yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but it, it is. It's just down to putting in those hours. It's yeah. pure and simple. Yeah, but those hours of practice that you're putting in, not everybody is able to to do that and execute that effectively so where does that 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 side of you come from like are there any earlier experiences earlier memories that you've had where perhaps you've seen a parent work really really long hours really work hard at something that's made you want to strive for the same thing or is there something that you can that you can no I don't don't think it was that no I don't I I didn't know it I was doing it at the time probably that I was wow uh, I kind of was putting in all this practice and who knew if it would take me anywhere. You know, so many kids do put in the practice and yeah. it never happens for them. So I was lucky. And when I did get a chance, I, I took it. Uh, but no, it wasn't any example that I'd seen. It it, it just felt natural. It was just something yeah. I enjoyed. And, you know, some kids uh, are pushed and maybe they haven't got a passion for a sport, whatever. Yeah. and. And, you know, as I said, that they, they, they take a step back and they don't want to do it. But for me, it certainly wasn't hard work. And I, I just loved it. I just loved messing about with a ball at your feet and that. Yeah, I think when you enjoy something, it makes it a lot easier, yeah, right? It makes it yeah. makes it ten times easier. So you were signed to Leicester City, as as we know, and you'd moved from Alva Church, going on to Leicester City. You didn't get off to the best start, and you you mentioned this in the book because you're adapting to Gordon Milner's style, which is obviously difficult, you know, when when you're having to adapt to a new team, being in a new environment. And you also talk about the first day nerves and that how that affected you on the kind of on the day that you were coming in and mm, playing your first yeah. match, but on the training ground you actually scored a hat-trick which is obviously an amazing achievement and we'll talk about that later on um how did you maintain such a high level of composure during those high intensity moments because that's hard to do it is isn't it i mean when you look back you think oh i should have been more nervous maybe because this is at the start of my career and if i don't get it right it's all going to go pear-shaped yeah and then you tighten up and if you don't relax, you know, you're not going to play well. So 
I don't really know. Looking back, it was just just one of those things. I mean, when I, I when I first arrived at the club, a manager signed me, a Scottish man called Jack Wallace, and then he left. He went up to a Scottish club, and then of course you're thinking, oh, the manager that signed me uh, has left. So mm. this is bad news for me. But then, as it happened, it was good news for me because a new manager, Gordon Milne, as you say, came in who wanted to turn over the playing staff bring in the players that he wanted and he, he, he released a lot but I was a new boy on the block and he, and he brought me into the fold um, so that that was actually a bit of luck you know yeah. it looked like a setback at the start but that that was one of those little moments that you look back on and think it's a bit of a sliding doors moment that um, that helped me yeah well I mean you've mentioned that you have always taken things in your stride and that you've never got worked up and like you said you've had that kind of I suppose I want to say laid back, but no, sometimes I am laid, laid back, back. I am. I am. <laughs> uh, which is a really good thing because I would say that it's in a way not being nervous and just taking action and getting on with it is is a good thing. It's yeah. obviously helped you. It you has, know? I think. I think my school teachers always said, "Oh, Alan, parents even," and he always takes everything <laughs> in his stride. He said to my mum and dad, and uh, I never forget my. Uh, teammate David O'Leary he uh, he'd been at the club about 10 years and he, he ended up spending about 20 years at Arsenal and he always said to me uh, he said smudge that's my nickname he said yeah. most people's lives are like that he says but I always think yours is like that <laughs> which I've never really thought about it before but when it comes to the big occasion I think it does help you um take it in your stride and yeah not regard it as such a huge thing you, Football to me, I've, I, like I've never cried about football because it, mm. you know, it is a game. I cry about my family and everything because that's what's closest to my heart. Um, but for me, you know, you go out there, do your best, and you hope you're successful. Then you can come home to you, to your family, and and that's how I've always um, looked upon it. Yeah. And you can't change your character. You are what you are. You can't try and be something you're not. So, yeah, yeah that, that that's just how it's been with me. Wow. The fact that you've been able to keep your composure during those difficult moments is, is an amazing thing to be able to do. And I I know that, you know, if you relate it to the corporate world, it's it's so difficult for people to remain calm and collected during those those difficult moments. And yeah. I don't know, do you have any tips or advice for those <laughs> that are listening and and struggle with this type of thing and I know I always think to myself what's the worst that can happen that's yeah. how I always yeah. phrase everything especially when I'm doing something that's out of my comfort zone I always ask myself Shivani what's the worst thing that could ever happen and yeah. it's never that bad no no and it's never as important what you're doing as you think it is is it because you're getting wrapped up in it and you think the world's revolving around you and what's happening but you know I always kind of try and look at myself from upon high and we're all little ants scurrying about, you know, yeah. aimlessly half the yeah. time. And uh, it, it's not that important, really. Yeah. So just go out there and do your best and, you know, whatever will be. You won't get it right all the time, but you have to make decisions that you think are right at the time. Right, it's giving importance to the things that actually matter and not sweating the small stuff. Yeah, which, exactly. Which yeah. makes a difference. Yeah. Um, so you spent five seasons at Leicester. You scored 84 goals in 217 appearances, which is an amazing performance. To maintain that kind of consistency, it takes takes a lot. So how did you maintain that level of performance throughout those five seasons? Yeah, I mean, I had spells when I wasn't scoring uh, because... 
to join a professional club like that from non-league, it's a big step up. And the first thing I noticed was the training. You're feeling tired because I was only training twice yeah. a week with Alf Church. All of a sudden, it's Monday to, to Friday. So you're having to get used to the physical side of it. But obviously, the step up in class as well. Um, so that was something that you gradually get to grips with. But um, when I joined Leicester, they were in, say, the, the old the second tier so as it, it's the championship now below the Premier League it was the second division then um, and um, there were periods in that first season where I struggled a little bit the manager took me out but I still managed to score my fair share of goals and what helped me I built up a good relationship with my strike partner Gary Lineker yeah yeah and that always helps you know you're trying to make your way in the game especially somebody like me a non-league player stepping up to pro football and then I'm I'm with somebody that I naturally click with, mm-hmm. and so we're not having to think about it too much, and our respective games suit each other, and uh, so we had a good partnership, and that definitely helped me on my way. Yeah, I, I I read in the book that you you've always had a really good relationship with Gary Lineker, even like inside and outside of football, your family's getting along, that type of thing. Yeah. That always helps, I think, when you get along yeah. with the people that you work with, in yeah. this case, that you're playing with. Yeah, that's it. So. Yeah, we used to go out, my girlfriend and him and his girlfriend, who soon became, became his wife, as did mine, yeah we'd, yeah, we'd go out for meals and everything, and yeah, we got on well off the pitch, and, and we certainly did get on well on the pitch sometimes with strike partnerships any partnerships in football in sport you really do have to work at them but this kind of clicked and it was natural yeah which which helped yeah no that's really really good um so things took a turn after that so you had these five amazing seasons and then you know unfortunately in your in your final season Leicester were relegated um which is obviously a difficult thing to go through what was the reason for your team underperforming? You know, why was there suddenly a dip in performance at that well, point? Well, we were we were always fighting against relegation. Mm. So uh, it was never a done deal that we were going to be safe in, in the top league. Um, we didn't... Leicester never had much money to spend back then. Um, so we were always fighting against it. Um, and to spend... Well, we spent four years in the top flight that I was there for we got promoted in my first year mm-hmm. uh, but the year we did get relegated I'd actually already signed for Arsenal so technically yeah. I was an Arsenal player I'd gone back on loan to Arsenal right. to, uh, to Leicester to try and help in their relegation fight so it was a weird it was a weird day when we got relegated yeah. um, because I, I waved goodbye to the Leicester fans and um, there was a dinner that night down in London for Arsenal an end right. season dinner and it was a it was a dinner suit affair, and that, so I'd taken my dicky bow with me too. It was Oxford where we got relegated, and uh, so I I was thinking about that once once the end of the match came. I was sad for Leicester, sad for my teammates, mm. but by the same token, I was thinking about my new career now. Right. And I think I've got to get down to London to meet my new teammates. Yeah. So I've jumped in the shower, got out, put my dicky bow on, and I'm I've headed out <laughs> the door. And left them all there with their heads on the floor. Yeah. So it, it, it was a weird one. It, I mean, it, it was sad. It's bittersweet but, in a way, right? Well, in football, you've, you've got to think about yourself as well. You, you, yeah. You've got, to th- you've got to be a little bit selfish in that respect. I mean, mm. I've, al- I've always been a team player, but I wanted to do well in my career. And mm. Arsenal was a, a step up, a big step up from Leicester. 
going down to London was a big thing as well. Mm. And I soon found out that the media scrutiny was so much more. If you yeah. hadn't scored for a couple of games, it was all over the backs of the the tabloids. So, um, yeah, I was thinking about that and thinking, well, that's a shame. I've got to move on now and think, you know, about my new career with Arsenal. Absolutely. And you had a lot of opportunities at that time because, of course, your performance with Leicester City was obviously very consistent. You were doing really well. And then you were at a point where just prior to being signed to Arsenal, and you and you mentioned this again, I keep making references to the book, but it's a really interesting point because your first contract with Arsenal, you say from a money standpoint, the contract was nowhere near good enough and that you feel that you should have negotiated for a higher you know, salary in relation to that. Looking back now, what, what are your thoughts? Do you feel the same way or? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, people sometimes say, oh, I've never, I don't have any regrets, and I find that hard to believe because there are obviously things yeah. looking back that you wish you'd done differently. And I never had a, a close relationship with an agent, which maybe hindered me financially. And I did some of my negotiations myself, but I've never, you know, I'm not a tough cookie in that direction and I get a little bit embarrassed about asking for so much money and and so it turned out that I didn't, I could have got more, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I could have got more. Um, but um, I also could have joined the wrong club. I, I, I had talks with Chelsea, funnily enough, um, yeah. before I signed for, for Arsenal and I knew I didn't want to join Chelsea. This was before they started winning things um yeah why is that like why not i just had a feeling i i i'd had my heart set on us i knew arsenal were interested and there was something about arsenal that appealed to me and so without even asking how much they paid i said oh thank you for the offer but no i, I don't want to join chelsea yeah um you had a conversation with alex ferguson as yes, well right yeah he rang he rang up my home one one night in the week when i was sat in the lounge with my mum and dad <laughs> the phone as it was back then always in the hall so my mum goes out to answer it and she comes back and says oh there's an Alex Ferguson on the phone asking for you Alan and I thought she got the name wrong but he hadn't long been at Manchester United I think he'd only been there about eight months or so and uh, he was yeah. starting to build things and again I said to him I'm, I'm, I'm sorry Mr Ferguson but I've made up my mind I want to join Arsenal he yeah. wanted me to leave leave it to the summer when my contract had run out where I was I was going to sign for Arsenal uh, a few months before the end of the season, which again, financially, probably wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah. Almost definitely wasn't the right thing to do. But on the flip side, I joined a club that was on the cusp of things. And, and funnily enough, Manchester United, they had to wait four or five years before they won the league. So mm. my career might have panned out differently in the search for success. I might not have stayed at Manchester right. United. You never know. Whereas at Arsenal, we started winning things and I became a a big part of the success there. Yeah, absolutely. And at Arsenal, you know, you had certainly a number of highs, but you also had, you know, some low moments during that time frame as well. And I want to go into that in, in a bit more detail. But initially, when you when you joined Arsenal, you scored a hat-trick on your debut in front of a packed Highbury against Portsmouth, which must have been such an wasn't amazing... Wasn't my debut. Okay, it wasn't? wasn't? My <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> my debut was against Liverpool uh, at Highbury and we lost. Oh, okay. We lost, yeah. And then we went up to, I don't know which order, but we went up to Manchester United and uh, QPR. We played over at QPR and we didn't win. We lost one and drew one. So the fourth game was at Highbury. was a Highbury, okay. Okay. And, and I said to you, when I was aware of the media scrutiny, the, the heightened media scrutiny, that was when I saw 
back of the sun was Arsenal are going for so-and-so striker because Alan Smith hasn't settled. This was after three games when I hadn't scored a goal, so I thought, oh, wow, it's a bit different here to Leicester. Yeah. Uh, and then I got a hat-trick against Portsmouth, which came just at the right moment for me, and then I went on and, and scored a few more that season. Wow. I mean, it wasn't a brilliant season goals-wise, but I, it, it helped me just settle in. Yeah, um, no. Yeah. But scoring a hat trick would have been an amazing achievement. You must have been so happy about that. And I know that you know my me, my fiance and you know my boss always say that scoring a hat trick is rare. It's everyone every footballer's yeah, dream. Happen, so yeah. it's yeah. it must have been amazing. Can you put into words how that felt scoring a hat trick? Yeah, it, it was um, it was a relief to start off with, and uh, but also to do it uh, at Highbury in front of the Arsenal fans really satisfying because they're all thinking we've paid a lot of money for this centre forward you know what are we going to get yeah so um that was nice that I'd, I'd got the hat trick and they could see that I could offer something so I've gone home that night thinking yeah maybe I can be a success here um yeah. there were still hiccups bumps along the road but um yeah. to do that yeah it's um we beat them 6-0, I think, 6-1, 6-0. So it was a resounding victory. But, um, yeah, to get to get that hat-trick um, set, set me on the way. So it was brilliant. Yeah, it must have been a real, you know, uplift in terms of confidence levels, right? Because you mentioned that it was tricky. Your, your start initially at Arsenal was tricky. And yeah. you encountered a goal drought, for example, which was really, really tough. And Well, you start to, to doubt that. yourself, yeah. don't you? Um, yeah. When I went to Leicester, you're thinking, am I good enough to be a professional footballer? Then you go to Arsenal and you think, am I good enough for the step up now? So until you can prove by scoring, as a striker by scoring goals, there the will be that doubt in your mind. And I've, I've never been one of those people that's just so confident that I can do it, you know. Mm. I can be a bit, ne not negative, but uh, not... Um, not rating myself as much as I should have. Yeah. Not realising that I'm a good player. Yeah, um, and that you can do it. Yeah. You've got the ability. Thinking, oh, yeah, I don't know, am I good enough for this? You know, there's always been that kind of attitude. Yeah, yeah. Some people are just, yeah, yeah, I'm made for this. You know, I can go out there and show them. Um, yeah. I remember an England coach when we were away in Sweden for the European Championships, I was knocking the ball about and I've volleyed one in the opposite goal from the halfway line and the coach said um, oh you're better than you think you are Alan you mm. are you're actually better than you think you are and, and that probably sums it up you mm. know that I didn't um but I think in some ways that's better mm. it's better to 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 outperform yourself rather than constantly think that you're amazing at something but then you underperform so the fact that you D demonstrated that you can do it and that yeah. you're capable is sometimes a good thing yeah yeah no no so. it can be yeah it can be and then when you do it you think oh wow that was that was amazing yeah no it is an amazing <sighs> achievement i want to talk a little bit about the gold drought because you know as you according to the to the book and you know what i've read you scored 11 goals in 39 games at the that point season. in the first mm. season and so what impact did that have like from a confidence level standpoint, you you touched on it slightly because it was it was a difficult start when you were at Arsenal. So how did that affect you from from a mental and physical standpoint going through that? You know, well, uh, I think the manager plays a big part. Mm. He's invested a lot of money in me, so he wants to see me do well mm. for him as much as anything else. His judgment. 
So he, he would talk to you on the training ground and uh, you'd work on things, practice things, and you just have to keep at it. Mm. Obviously, you go home some days and you think, oh, this is hard work. Oh, you know, am I going to be good enough for this? But yeah, I've always been a persistent character, Qu quietly stubborn. You know, I just keep going at it. Um, and I, ne I never knew I was stubborn until my dad told me once. I, <laughs> I never thought I was. And then people since have said it in, in an affectionate way. Oh, you're stubborn, Alan. <laughs> my commentator said it once. Yeah. Uh, and I never thought I was. But, uh, yeah, kind of that quiet resolve to keep on going and, and to stick to it, get your head down, keep going. Yeah. And then, if, you know, if you've got the talent, it will yeah. happen. Sometimes that's the best way forward to quietly put, you know, work on yourself and push forward sometimes makes all the difference. And yeah. like you say, you, you did get through it. And the following season was a complete contrast. You ended up scoring 23 league goals. You earned your first England cap against Saudi Arabia. And you also earned a golden boot, which was an amazing achievement, of course. Um, there's so much, so many quotes, positive um, affirmations out there about having to fail to succeed and, and picking yourself back up. So how did you raise your game that following season? What changed in terms of like a strategy point of view? Well, I'd got one season under my belt, so I felt a little bit more um, settled. And, you know, off the pitch as well, you've bought a house and you're getting used yeah. to the area. You know, a lot of the, the fans don't see that off yeah. the pitch stuff. Uh, so you're feeling a bit more settled at home and getting into a rhythm and a routine, going into training. You know the lads better. I scored a hat-trick on the opening day of that yeah. season. You've just yeah. mentioned 88-89 at Wimbledon. So that got me off to a flyer. And I remember the journalists outside the dressing room waiting to talk to me and asking if they thought I'd win, I'd be a contender for the Golden Boot, the top scorer. I go, oh, no, 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 I, I, I'm not that type of player. You know, typical me, because I play more with my back to goal and creating. And um, I said, don't put your money on me. But yeah, I ended up winning the Golden Boot. Uh, but I didn't have too many uh, runs of games where I didn't score then. It was yeah. quite consistent. Yeah. And I've always been kind of one of those scoring bursts, you know, and uh, I might I might have a drought here and there, but once I start scoring, like most strikers will tell you, because you're not thinking about it, you're just putting the ball away instinctively. Um, and the team were getting better as well. We were creating more chances. We were becoming a better team. We won the league that year, so yeah. obviously we were becoming better, and uh, I was at the, the focal point of it in attack. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a lovely season to play in. Yeah. I mean, overall, you did really, really well, of course. You you have two league titles, a European Cup, a Winners' Cup. I'm going to list it off. FA Cup, League Cup, two golden boots, 13 England caps. And so looking back on that performance overall, you know, how do you describe your success at Arsenal? Do you reminisce and think wow, I, I, I'm really grateful for what I achieved, or do you think... No, I do, yeah. I yeah. Do. Well, I, I mentioned luck um, earlier, and I joined Arsenal at a time when they were on the cusp of things. There were a raft of youth team players coming through, Tony Adams, David Rocastle, Michael Thomas, Paul Merson, all talented young lads were coming into the first team, and I could see that, and then the manager added... Uh, players like me and mm. Lee Dixon, Nigel Winterburn, Steve Bold, that, that formed the basis of the defence. Um, so I was lucky that I joined a club that was 
coming into a period of i mean obviously i contributed to that su success but yeah i say in the book there's much better players than me haven't won anywhere near the same amount of medals um and that that's a bit of luck as well yeah but yeah it was a golden period in arsenal's history uh to win all those trophies um so i, I look back you know with with great um satisfaction that i was able to do that i really do yeah you should be proud you've done an amazing job and you're still humble in the way you deliver it which is you don't find that often especially when i speak to people day day in day out it's it's rare to find people that are humble and even though you've achieved so many things you're still looking back and thinking well actually there was an element of my hard work and determination but it's also about luck and so I can really see the humble, you know, side of you come through. Yeah, well, yeah that that yeah. that's just me. That's just the way I've always been. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a most say boys' dream and girls' dream, obviously now more is with with women's football becoming bigger. Yeah. To to be able to have done what I have done, I feel honoured really, and been involved in some huge matches. I mean, to win the league uh, at Anfield in 1989, which mm -hmm. is probably the most famous game in English football history because of the circumstances to grab the title in the last seconds. Um, and I scored in that game and set up the winner. And so that, again, that was so satisfying to be able to uh, contribute when the pressure was really cranked up, you know. Yeah. Um, it was, that. that's when a level temperament, I think, helped me. Yeah. Uh, when I could just concentrate on what I had to do and not think about the occasion, really. Just think about what your job was. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely the case. I want to talk about something slightly different because following your success, having won two golden boots, I want to talk a little bit about Ian Wright because you mentioned him in the book and this, you know, this is in line with the topic of conf confrontation and, you know, being able to address that. And, you know, to bring context... Ian comes in, his style's improvised, it's different to what you're used to, it's unpredictable, and you talk about this in the book and you say that you wish you had spoken to him privately and had a conversation with him about finding a way to collaborate better on pitch, and um, you say that confrontation is not something that comes naturally to no, you, no. self-doubt's creeping in at this point, even though Loads, you've, yeah. you've earned two golden boots. Mm. Looking back now, what are your thoughts on confrontation? And, and how would you deal with it, like, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm not naturally somebody that wants to face up to a problem. I kind of buried it in a way. But um, I wished I had um, addressed it a little bit more. And I remember ringing up Ian when I was writing the book and saying, look, I'm going to talk about our relationship. And we'd never spoken about it, but the, the fact that it, was, it didn't click and I, and I really struggled, he didn't struggle... He was flying, but he said, yeah, that's fine, Smudge, you know, you say what you've got to say. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, when Ian came to the club, I thought it was the best move ever because his game, I thought, would really suit mine. Yeah. Uh, but as it turned out, it didn't. It's funny how things turn out. But, um, yeah, confidence-wise, I'd never been lower. Uh, I just couldn't get things together. And, and as you say, um, I'd won the Golden Boot the year before mm -hmm. uh, Ian came. But then my goals really dried up. Mm. And I, went, I went to see a sports psychologist. Yeah, you, you say that in the and book. And this was when people didn't see them so much. Mm. But this particular sports psychologist had come along with England. So I, I knew him and I went to see him. But it didn't really do much good. Um, and as it turned out, I never actually solved it. Uh, my relationship with Ian, we never got it together. 
and then I got injured and I retired. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the other big game in my career was when we won the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1994. Ian wasn't in the team that night in the final. He was uh, suspended. Uh, and it was almost as if I, the clock was turned back and I became the player that I was before he arrived and I had mm. more confidence. It was a very weird situation, really. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's how your mindset can change. Yeah. Some, somebody's not on the pitch and things feel different. Yeah. Um, so um, that that was a big uh, regret that I never solved that and then I retired and yeah. I never kind of came out of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I will ask you this. It's a bit of a harder question at this point, but when you say that your performance was obviously going, I suppose, downhill in relation, you know, following Ian coming, coming in, do you think the way you were treated perhaps like you know by by teammates or by from like a managerial st- standpoint was that you know Im- was that impacted because of your performance so to speak yeah you, tre- do you, you think do you think you're that treated you're treated differently. differently yeah you are yeah yeah you're no longer quite so valuable and people think oh he's had his time you know we've seen the best of him and that's hard right yeah, especially yeah, when was, you've been committed for so many the years number one striker yeah, yeah there I was the top scorer for four consecutive seasons and then you know as I said it, it stopped but um yeah it's you know but it happened I couldn't sort it out um but again you know most footballers would tell you they've, they've had really low points in their careers and, mm. and that was mine but on the flip side I had to make sure I contributed to the team so I was still doing a job. I wasn't scoring anywhere yeah, near yeah. as much, but I was holding the ball up. I was working. I was laying balls off, creating goals. You know, getting assists. Uh, although we didn't, you know, assists weren't mentioned then. But um, yeah, I was. I felt well. If I'm not going to score, I've got to make sure I work even harder. And I do actually contribute to the team, and I, and I did. Yeah. I, I was in and out then, whereas before I was always first choice. But. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't easy to deal yeah, with no. once you've been there and then you're kind of back in the pack and, it's tough. oh, am I going to play Saturday, am I not? You know, that kind of... I always knew before that I would play. Yeah, well, at least you put 110% in despite despite that. So that's yeah. that's always a good thing. So, as you said, you retired due to injury, as you mentioned. You retired at the age of 32. And some of the things... That, you talk about this right at the beginning of your book in relation to your injury. You say that you were devastated. You felt like an outsider. And the thing that you missed the most would be the camaraderie, that feeling of togetherness, the unity aspect at that time in your life how did you cope through that time frame yeah not easy uh, my family helped me enormously I mean I've got two young daughters and my wife was there for me um, but it, it's so difficult because one day you're inside that circle of trust in that dressing room and then the day that the surgeon says you can't play on you're outside the circle and I never forget going to pick up my boots and that from the mm. training ground. And it was the first day of pre-season, the following season, and uh, I went in to say bye bye. And I couldn't wait to get out because they were all looking ahead and looking forward to the season. So their priorities were much different to mine, and I was yeah. just outside, uh, and I wanted to go. Uh, but at that point, I'm thinking, right, okay, I've got to earn a living because obviously the money that we earned back then was good, but it wasn't the the amount that you could not have to worry about providing for your family. So I can understand why so many players do struggle. And I think they will still struggle. Yeah. Not, 
not from a financial point of view if they've played at the top level but what am I going to do with my life now you know they've got a long time there's a saying in football you're a long time retired and so make the most of your career but this was forced upon me and that's when my education came to the fore and I was able to start doing some writing for the Evening Standard I started doing some columns and then I started writing for the Telegraph so I was able to concentrate on something yeah. Um, and all my ex-teammates were still there. I mean, the first day of the season and I'm looking at match of the day, whatever, and seeing them all trotting out. Yeah, it, that's it's hard. It's not easy at all. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sat at home. And, and they, um, a lot of those lads went on to play for another six, seven years. So. Yeah. But um, again, you know, you don't want to wallow in your own self-pity. Yeah, you, I, I, I just, again, I just got my head down and concentrated because I've got a family to support what am I going to do now? And mm-hmm. that's what I did. I just tried to, you know, look forward. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to footballers who have to retire early, either because of injury or for another personal reason? Because, I, you know, like you said, that the, the career span of a footballer is very different from, say, someone with a corporate career who's in their job for 50, 60 years. So are there any tips or advice, you know, words of wisdom that you can offer to those that have to retire because of injury, looking back. Yeah, now. well, don't look back. Look forward and and try and um, you've you've obviously got skills as a you've 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 been an elite athlete. So try and transfer those skills. You know, you've had uh, you've had dedication, ability. Try and transfer those into something else. You know, it's not always easy to find a new path, but try and do it and um, and concentrate on that and being as good as you can at that rather than always lamenting about my career that I've lost it's you know it's not easy for a lot of lads but uh, you know that it, it's the only way forward really I mean the divorce rate for retired footballers I think is really yeah high. yeah so it's, yeah you know, it's quite a worrying thing the stat is like one third or is it more than that i think you made a reference about yeah, this yeah, in the book some, i'm trying to remember it like that. yeah you can see how it would test a relationship because yeah. all of a sudden you're sat at home you know kicking yeah. your feet you haven't got anything to do but if you just try and find something and devote your energy to that yeah stay in the present really is what's yeah. important right yeah yeah of course mm. I want to shift your mindset onto mental health a little bit in in relation to the sports industry because in the book you talk about the fact that footballers take medication and sometimes they do that instead of resting for two or three weeks, let's say, and they're fearful of being replaced and for me re- when reading that that's such a ridiculous amount of pressure to, to to go through you know to have your career potentially you know there's so much uncertainty for example mm. and you're always worried that you may get replaced by somebody else mm. what are your thoughts on that do you feel that that's still prevalent today or do you feel things are changing now i think it's probably wise? slightly different today because of the money uh, the huge sums of money that players earn they don't mm. feel as vulnerable now they've obviously got that security of a three four year contract and they think well i will get back in the team eventually for us it was win bonuses were always a big thing uh they don't play a part now um they're not as important but for us so you want to be in that team an appearance fee quite often you would get um and um you just yeah you didn't want to drop out and so anti-inflammatory tablets you'd take to to numb the pain and try and grit your teeth and carry on 
it, it was a different mindset then, mm. I think, to what it is now. But at some point, that must take a toll on you, right? Because you keep on taking this medication throughout your career, which is which serves as a, as a small-term fix. And then at a certain point, it all gets too much, and then you have to retire. So that must be difficult to have to deal with, and it must have a toll, surely, on from a mental health standpoint. Yeah, and, and uh, the medical support back then was nowhere near what it is now and yeah players used to have cortisone injections into their joints which you have too many of those and the but it can damage the bone and you know a lot of players have suffered that way mm. so the, the lads today are so well looked after and that would never happen that's good uh, yeah. so they're brought out and even before they get injured sometimes they're brought out because they've got the heart monitors on and they the coaches, the sports scientists know when they're getting tired and when you get tired, you're more susceptible to injuries. So there's all this devotion to it that, that we didn't have. Yeah. You, you just you just kept on going for as long as you could. Yeah, um, yeah. So you, you've got to have a bit of mental fortitude to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, and you, you wouldn't want to show a weakness in your character. If you were struggling for me- mental health attitude, you that was never spoken about then. yeah well, it is a lot more now which is yeah. a fantastic thing it's yeah. more out in the open but then that would have been a, a sign of weakness yeah i guess there's more awareness of it and it's it, i think people are reframing their mindset in relation to it i know there's still stigma attached to mental health in certain communities and mm. it's still sometimes looked down upon or perceived in a different way but certainly i think there's more awareness in comparison to like you say beforehand where it wasn't yeah. talked about no so. and you know the football world the men's football world is quite a macho environment. It mm, still is. Yeah. And people expect these footballers to, to be strong and be uh, mentally strong. And you do have to be mentally strong to, to, to do well in football. But, you know, nobody's 100%, you know, no. uh, bulletproof. Uh, everybody can have their low moments. So uh, it's good that people can address those more now. Yeah. Know? I remember I played with a lad who he got ostracised for about, couple of years he'd said something in the paper that the manager didn't like and he was sent to train with the youth team and this went on for two years which would never happen now Mm. because you're earning too much money to be wasted but you know his mental health goodness knows how he felt for that time when he'd get changed next to me and then I'd train on one pitch and he'd be over there with the young kids you know and he was a senior pro so That, that used to happen a lot back then you could be bullied by the management, you know, and you had to accept it, really. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was just it was just a part and parcel of the game. Yeah, but I guess it's changed now. It's it's yeah. it's not maybe the case anymore. Perhaps. Do you agree? Well, the players hold all the cards. Yeah, man. they do. That's they do. Good. <laughs> you know, you sign a, a contract for you know twenty million pounds over five years or something, and uh, yeah, you you call the shots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, for a manager, a manager's got to manage much differently. The manager's got to um, be a psychologist, really, in how to uh, man manage, how to treat different characters, because mm. you kind of they're a little bit more fragile now. They can be upset easier, uh, so there's not so many rantings and rollickings going on. And you know, Alex Ferguson used to have the hair dryer. He's shouting in somebody's face. That doesn't happen really at all these days. Uh, it's a lot calmer, and people thinking about, oh, how do I deal with him in a calm and reasonable way? Where yeah. it, was, it wasn't like that in my yeah. time. 
Yeah, yeah. I suppose in a way that that experience that you've had has made you stronger and in a way resilient, do you reckon? Yeah. Having those tough experiences maybe with managers in the past where they've maybe not necessarily been as empathetic to your situation. Yeah. Do you feel in some ways that it's made you a lot more resilient and tougher and like you say you've you've mentioned this this idea of not sweating the small stuff so do you feel in a way that it's benefited you in some ways by by having that kind of yeah, hard think, tough approach i think so you know um to be able to take it and um act on it constructively you yeah. know and and not fold and just you know disappear into the corner and blubbering wreck you know yeah, uh, yeah. you've got to put your chin out and um and react yeah and yeah and, and show that you can you know get better do what he wants you to do and uh uh take take all that because uh, you know all your teammates are looking at you when you're getting a rollicking and they're mm. all looking to see how you react as well yeah so you're aware of that mm. you, you need to respond to it yeah yeah, I, I suppose it shapes you in, in some, mm. some, some some degree. Um, let's talk about life after football, because like you said, you've been writing for The Telegraph, you've been commentating for a number of years. What's that transition been like in terms of moving from the world of football, well, as a footballer playing football, to the point of now commentating and, and writing for The Telegraph? Well, if you'd have said to me when I retired that year, if I would go on and spend 25 years in the media, I'd have said, you must be joking, because... <laughs> <laughs> I, I am more introverted than extrovert, quite a sort of character, and I thought that's not suited to the media world, really. I thought writing would be, mm. but the TV side of things, I never thought I would uh, make a career in it. So you just never know in life how things can turn out. But I'd got a relationship with Sky, having been a guest there when I was injured, when I was at Arsenal. So then that kind of uh, built up when I was retired and I acted as a studio guest for the Arsenal games and I started doing other things for them and kind of learnt on my feet. Um, mm. And the best thing I ever did was uh, get into the co-commentary world. And, and again, when when one of the lead directors asked me, he said, you should have a go at this. And oh, I, don't, I don't think I'm suited to that. Yeah. You know, I've, I've got a bit of a dull, brummy, monotone voice, which, which I have. But when I commentate, I've learnt to lift it. And so... I've always known what I've had to do for things. I've been able to self-teach myself things and work hard at it and know what's required. And, and I knew in commentary that, you know, you had to give it some, some welly. And so um, I, I, I gradually got to grips with that. And I've been doing that for like 18, 19 years or something. Um, so that's been wonderful. But yeah, I'd never thought I would have... Uh, I would have hung around in that industry for so long, really. I just... I, I mean... It's it's amazing, really, how, how life can turn out. Yeah, I mean, you say, again, in your book, you say that you underestimated your abilities when it came to commentating, and yeah. you lacked that self-belief, and, you know, you thought almost, I can't do this, I've, I'm not I'm not capable, in a way, of, of, of perhaps mm. going down this new path. Mm. Why why do you think you feel that way? Where, why is that happening? <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. But um, the good thing is that I, I could do it. Yeah, you know. exactly. Um, I mean, I don't want to tempt fate, but everything I've tried to do so far in my life, I've been able Has to worked. make a success yeah. of it. So there's got to come a time that... <laughs> You've got a proven track um, record. Yeah. yeah. But that that uh, is down partly to um, 
dedication and as I said that bloody mindedness that I'm going to be able to do it it's that quiet stubbornness that yeah I'm going to really uh, think about this what needs to be done how I, how I can become a success at it um, I think some people get into it and think it's just going to happen and whatever they say they'll be a success and they don't work at it enough mm. you know I've always worked at it um, and, and I still do you know mm. and I, going into uh, onto a gantry to do co-commentary I'm always thinking I'm always feeling I've got to prove myself again you know mm. every match I do because um, you know it's a competitive industry there's loads of people who want to do my job so thankfully it's not an easy job to do mm. uh, if you're bad at it it shows straight away really if you're good at it mm. almost you go under the radar you're not noticed but if you're bad at it it sticks out like a sore thumb, mm. co-commentary. Mm. So, um, thankfully, I've been okay at it. Yeah, well, clearly you have been... My fiancé says you've been great at it. Oh, so he's good. a good lad, good lad. <laughs> a man of taste. <laughs> That's good. Um, one thing I will ask you, on, on in the spirit of commentating, is that do you find it hard to remain neutral when you're covering both sides of an argument, both in your writing but also in the world of commentating, especially if you're talking about a former team? Do you, do you struggle with that? Because in the book you say that some people do struggle with it and they find it quite hard, especially when they've moved away from being a footballer and, and actively playing to the point of where they're now commentating and they have to talk about mm. and, and, and perhaps criticise in some ways. Yeah, and you might be criticising so, former teammates, Yeah, right, friends. exactly. But I, I've not found it difficult, I must admit. I've just yeah. thought I've got to be fair to both sides. There are people at home, same one doing an Arsenal game that, Arsenal versus uh, Aston Villa. You know, there are people at home supporting Aston Villa. I've got to represent them as well as represent the Arsenal fans. So I've always tried to, you know, go down the line and, and be 50-50. To be fair, Arsenal fans have had a go at me for saying, oh, you'd never thought he'd have played for us, you know. He's, he's anti-Arsenal and all that. But it's not. It's just trying to be fair to both sides and mm. uh, being impartial. I've never found that difficult. I mean, I, I did upset Arsenal fans a lot and I upset the club as well. I was critical when Arsenal got into a scrap at Old Trafford against Manchester United and I was up in the Sky Studio that, that day and uh, I was critical of what happened at the end when there was a scuffle and everything and I, and I went down and wrote a piece for the Telegraph as well and I was critical again. At that point, I was writing a column monthly, um, an interview with an Arsenal player each month and that stopped because they felt... I, you know, I can't be critical one minute and then coming in the next and being all um, friendly with everybody. And, and in a way, that put a nice distance between... It was a, a good move journalistically to put uh, a distance between me and my old profession. Mm. And so um, I felt I could be a little bit more subjective and honest about what I was seeing and I didn't have to worry about upsetting ex-teammates, whatever. How do you not worry about upsetting well, I others? Well, I mean, I did Because you're, in the pub, you're a public figure, yeah, so I d- that must I did be worry, hard. but um, I was determined to try and be fair. And to be honest, I've always been quite honest. Mm. So I was determined to be honest about what I was seeing out on the pitch. Yeah. And it's a game anyway. So if I say he's had a bad game... And, and players remember the slightest thing, you know. I remember it myself and some players after I've retired and I'll meet them and they'll give me the card cold shoulder and I'll think oh, really I've obviously said wow. something you know five years ago that they didn't quite like and they remember it yeah you know they Aww. do yeah. um but you know if that's the way it, and it makes me laugh a little bit because it's not important is it but 
players, <laughs> players do take things to heart and they'll, they'll remember. They won't remember all the wonderful things I've said about them. They'll remember that one little comment yeah. one day I said six yeah. years ago. Um, but, but that's human nature, right? We yeah, always we're always the ones that are self-critical, right? We always think about the negative aspects rather than what's what's positive in yeah. our lives. It's yeah, so yeah. easy to, to to focus and concentrate on the yeah. on the negativity, and the fact that you're able to block that out in a way, especially you know when I think about the, your career at Leicester City, Arsenal, being a public figure. And that must have been really difficult dealing with, say, media pressure, having articles written about you, being scrutinised openly, publicly, having people analyse, you know, commentators, you know, analyse all mm. of your games. Yeah. That's hard. So I know that you've in a way, in some, some degree, you've answered this, but what advice would you give to others that where they feel that they are constantly being criticised and scrutinised for making a particular decision, how do they block out that white noise and just focus on what they need to do? If they're sensitive to it, I mean, don't don't look at social media after after you've been on. You'll always get people criticising. I might have a little glance, but I don't take it seriously, really, what people say. Because wow. I, know, I know I'll be criticised. So, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a person with thick skin, but I try and just put it in perspective. You know, I've I've just been commentating on a football match and trying to speak my mind and be honest. And obviously, one half of the viewing public who I've kind of spoken against their team, they're not going to like it. But you know, fans are so one-eyed and see things down a, a tunnel that you're never going to please both sets of fans. Don't don't. I mean, if you work in the media, don't try and please everybody. It's never going to work. Just say it as you see it. So, I mean, I I know of footballers that even at half time now. I'll get the phone out of the pocket and have a look what people are saying on Twitter. I mean, oh, it's just God. crazy. Yeah. If, if you're that bothered about what some random stranger thinks about your first half performance, you're in the wrong game. So, yeah, I've always taken it with a pinch of salt, really. Yeah, no, that's that's really amazing. I have one final question. Um, what's next for you, Alan? <laughs> what's next on the horizon? Oh, I don't know, actually. But, um, I mean, I'd love to commentate for as long as I can because mm. I, I really enjoy it. Um, I've written my book. Whether I've got another book in me, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't mind writing another book. I'm not, I'm not writing for a newspaper at the moment, so uh, it wouldn't be... A, autobiographical thing but uh, maybe a bit of fiction I don't know um, but uh, there's always something around the corner yeah. so you always uh, you know you can never predict what's going to happen in the future as I said I would never predict it I'm in this position now so uh, there might be some surprises but um, it's important to take on challenges I think sometimes that you think oh I don't want to do that but you know it's important to get out of your comfort zone and do things that you think maybe wouldn't suit you but in the end maybe you find out that they do yeah well look alan it's been such a pleasure having you on thank you so much for coming on board no no it's <laughs> been my pleasure enjoyed it thank you <laughs>